all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family. From mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions, whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your program that you can call into and request any kind of uh, questions, uh, pose them to us today about any kind of medical issue that you might be going through. That's right. That's anything. This is on a Wednesday on Southern Remedy, and that's uh, in our lineup. That's our time that we usually reserve to any kind of um, questions that anybody wants to ask. So you get to sort of uh, determine what the topics of the day are. We do encourage you to email us. You can email those questions to remedy at mpbonline.org. Now, a lot of people, too, like to listen to things uh, asynchronously, as the term is. So that means just whenever is most convenient to you. So we do offer uh, archived programs on our website, mpbonline.org. And then also, of course, with your favorite podcasting app, just search for Southern Remedy at MPB uh, Think Radio, and you can uh, download those and uh, listen to them at your leisure. Or maybe you just catch half a program and you're like, you know what, I may want to go back and uh, just uh, see what uh, Dr. Jimmy said about that on the first part of it. So you can do that uh, anytime you want by just uh, searching for that on your favorite podcasting app. Lots of things that are going on right now. You know, a lot of people are re-engaging with their physicians. I know I've got a lot of patients that I haven't seen in a couple of years uh, for various reasons. Some of them had insurance reasons. Certainly COVID made a big impact. And we're re-engaging on some healthcare things to get sort of caught up. Um, healthcare screening is important to minimize risk down the line, whether that's risk of a heart attack, stroke, cancers, lots of different things mental health screening as well. You know, we do those screenings. Uh, some people will say, you know, there's just a lot of questions that they ask at the med- at the f- uh, physician's office these days. What's going on with that? It's really to give us more information, and we've developed some tools uh, that are not labs or not x-rays or any kind of tests like that, but basically some tools to help tease out what is your risk right now for depression, anxiety, uh, those kinds of things. And they're very useful, and a, a lot of 
of them, you can, you know, while you're waiting to come into the doctor's room, that's a, a good time to fill those out. And we try to do that for a lot of patients. Or if you're a parent of a patient, a lot of times we'll do that. So that is a useful thing to do. And Ask your physician, it's a good time if you are re-engaging with them, to ask about any kind of thing that you may have missed in the last three or four years, whether that's a colonoscopy or maybe it's an immunization against something. You might want to uh, sort of see because you may have uh, skipped a scheduled um, a, um, a time period where you would have normally gotten that. And uh, help your physician out. Uh, certainly electronic databases. I had a, a patient ask me this yesterday, like, hey, it may be time for my colonoscopy. Can you check on that? And it was like, no, nah, you're good till you know a few more years from now. But um, it's great to have that as a resource, and a lot of patients can access that directly uh, and then ask your uh, physician some questions. So anyway, you can be engaged with the, your health personally, or if you're a caregiver or a parent, the health of your loved one. That is going to really just improve the odds of you doing better with that. So if you have diabetes, it's very uh, predictable who's going to do better are the people that really take ownership of that and really invest themselves in knowing more about their own health care uh, and sort of their health risk and then what that means and what they can do to improve that. So ask all those questions. We love questions. At least I do anyway. Had a recent email about blood pressure. And those of you who've been listening for a long time know I love blood pressure questions. So uh, very common, certainly a lot of, uh, you know, the majority, vast majority of people in the U.S. are, are going to have blood pressure problems at some point in their life. Usually in the fourth or fifth decade of life, but uh, sometimes we're getting to see those a little bit earlier because of various uh, risk factors of how we eat, lack of uh, physical activity, obesity, all those things sort of play into the development of hypertension. But I had a question uh, from one individual saying, hey, you know, my blood pressure has been fairly well controlled for years or decades, but now I've reached the point where, um, you know, my blood pressure, I'm older and my blood pressure is 130 over 80 something um, on average. Is that acceptable or do I need to uh, maybe even back off of some medications at this point in my life? Now, blood pressure control is one of those things that once you um, are identified as having hypertension or an elevated blood pressure, it, you're really pretty much committed to treating that for the rest of your life. Now, I will say right off the bat, and I'll say this with my patients, it's not just medications that we treat blood pressure, high blood pressure with. We do treat uh, you know, high blood pressure. We recognize that if you do have some opportunities to change what you eat, to eat less processed foods, less salt, uh, less high-fat foods, and change that to a diet of uh, more uh, unprocessed vegetables, fruits, uh, the fat that you do get in your diet. It's better if the vast majority of that comes from plant sources. And if you eat meat, eating lean meats, particularly if they're fish or chicken, those are the kind of things that can bring down blood pressure. So the DASH diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension was actually one that was uh, proven to be very successful in lowering blood pressure pretty much as much as any one medication. And then if there are other things that you can do, like if you're a smoker, if you can stop, if you can lose some weight, if you can cut back on the salt uh, that you get in your diet again, those kinds of things can reduce your blood pressure as well. So all of those together may be enough to put you in the normal range, or a better way to think about it is to minimize the wear and tear on your heart and the organs that are connected to those arteries over time so that you don't have some of the effects of an elevated blood pressure. 
So that's important to do. But if you if you you know stop doing those things for any period of time and sort of fall back on those old habits, or if you're treated with a medication that has you treated to a your goal blood pressure, uh, and then all of a sudden you don't take that. Usually we'll see, you know, the blood pressure creeps back up to where it was before. And that's something that you pretty much have to deal with on a regular basis to keep it controlled. It's not something that once it's at that number, you can then stop all therapy and uh, and it's going to stay at that point for the most part. I mean, there are some changes in our bodies over time for individuals that for whatever reason you may have to uh, decrease or de-escalate uh, blood pressure medications at some point, but usually that's in our you know eighth or eighties or nineties uh, with with those patients. So I would say to our emailer and anybody else that has you know those kinds of questions out there, give it a try. I would recommend if you're already on medication and you're wanting to do something less for your blood pressure. Really hit it hard with physical activity, with getting plenty of sleep, with the DASH diet or something similar to that, with what works for you that does provide those benefits of lowering the blood pressure. If your blood pressure comes down with that, uh, those changes and on medication, then you can back off the medication. Uh, with the you know advice of your physician, I have some patients say, hey, six months ago, I stopped all my medications just to see what would happen. I'm like, well, just next time tell me because there may be some bad things that can happen if you do that. Uh, but in consultation with your physician, you know, I think most physicians really that's what we want is for somebody to be successful with those lifestyle changes so that they can minimize the amount of medications that they take. But I would do it in a supervised fast fashion. And what we know from a lot of studies now is even if you're older, there's a lot of good risk reduction that you can get from having your blood pressure controlled to uh, optimal level. So at least less than 130 over 80, in some cases, maybe even a little lower, depending on what your physician and you sort of talk about. So keep that in mind as you get older, that doesn't really change all of that much. Although, again, from person to person, there may be some some good reasons to do that. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you might be interested in and have a question about. We're going to go to John, who's on the road. Good morning, John. Good morning, doctor. How are you doing? Good. What's your question today? Well, um, I'm traveling, um, and uh, a couple of uh, mornings ago, I woke up with a rushing sound in, in one of my ears. And um, I, I live in Colorado. I live at about 8,700 feet elevation, and I've been down here near much nearer sea level for a couple of weeks, and I uh, didn't know if that would have anything to do with it. But it's kind of annoying. Yeah, there's several different things that it could be. Now, those that's fairly common. You know, a lot of people um, have that kind of sensation. I've had that sensation, too, in, in sound. And it can be from a number of things. There are a couple of muscles, really small muscles. The stapedius muscle is one of them that sometimes um, it can spasm and it helps to sort of tense up the, the tympanic membrane, your eardrum. And that's the main way that you interpret those sound waves as true sounds. And sometimes you can be sort of fluttering. Sometimes you can have other things or earwax in your ear that causes that the sound to change that way. Sometimes you can have a viral infection that affects the inner ear that either produces excess fluid in there or if you've got uh, even just a viral infection period. Or the way the inner ear drains is down the back of your throat through a little tube called the eustachian tube. 
And that can be uh, sort of clogged up for a number of reasons. Like right now with me, I'm sure mine's pretty clogged up with allergy symptoms because because the back of my mm-hmm. throat just feels like I've got some, uh, you know, increased uh, swelling back there just because of stuff. And it usually manifests as a post-nasal drip, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and, and the altitude change. You know, what happens in altitude change is that inner ear cavity – has to equalize to the external um, uh, barometric pressure. So, in other words, where, when the barometric pressure changes, when you go either up or down in in elevation, then you know how you you can yawn or you can sort of swallow. And what happens is that eustachian tube opens a little bit enough to as sort of a pop off valve. So either air goes into the ear, uh, middle ear, uh, the inner ear cavity, or it uh, air escapes from it, depending on what the relative differences are there. So all of that can manifest itself as this whooshing sound, or this, you know, this the difference in uh, uh, a rushing sound in your ear. A lot of people are worried that it is related to high blood pressure. Um, If your pressure is really high, you can actually hear that pulsation in your, you know, as as it sounds like it's in your head. People say, I just hear my heart beating in my head. That is a possibility, and you can even do it when your blood pressure is not all that high. Like if you go out and run a big race or something like that and you're not really used to it or you get really hot, sometimes people will have that sensation. It's probably a good idea to get checked out by somebody, but that also is a very common thing. Bottom line, if it goes away, that's okay. And particularly in your case, if you you know coming from Colorado, which everything's high there, right? As uh, as John Denver said, uh, so you can uh, and coming down to you know a place like Mississippi, which is very close to sea level or around the coast. Um, taking a either an antihistamine, which can sort of dry up the tissues in the back of the throat. Or to just do like a nasal washout or even to equalize that pressure um, by swallowing or yawning, opening the, you know, wide uh, your, your mouth wide. That can sometimes help sort of equalize that. But the effects of it can linger even after you equalize it. So those little nerves that pick up sound, sound waves and uh, transmit them to our brain are very sensitive and uh, sometimes, you know, things can sort of linger on. But if it's going on more than about a day or two, you probably need to, you know, check with your doctor about that just so they can check you out. Interesting. Thank you very much. I'll do that. All right, John. Be safe out there on the road. All Thank right. you for calling. All right. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Hope from Mobile, Alabama. Good morning, Hope. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Yes. I My question is, it says, I was um, 28 years old, had my son, and during childbirth had hypertension and had high blood pressure for over 19 years. It went away as fast as it came on. I was busy, went to the doctor, and he said, let's wean you off of blood pressure medicine. And sure enough, my blood pressure is healthy now. My question is, the contributing factor for it going back to normal was change in diet for over mm-hmm. five years. I just ate healthier. Is there anything else I can do? Because I've mastered that. Is there anything else I can do? Because basically the doctor says eventually it will come back. It's, it's in my family line. Is there anything else I can do besides dietary that will prevent or help maintain the healthy blood pressure? Yeah, that's a excellent question. And, you know, we didn't talk that much about family history, but genetics is very strong. It's a very strong indicator of high blood pressure. But the environmental factors that we present to our bodies 
can really sort of hold off on that uh, for a while. You, you did bring up one instance that is a risk factor. So if you uh, if you have gestational hypertension, uh, not preeclampsia necessarily, but the uh, gestational hypertension, it is a risk factor for the development of hypertension later in life. And it can be immediately after that pregnancy or in the years after that. But since you treated it with dietary changes, that that is of all the um, well, smoking is probably one of the bigger ones, depending on how much people smoke. And I usually this is one of the ways I like try to get people to stop smoking. I say, look, if you don't if you don't really believe in the effects that nicotine and smoking has on your body, um, check your blood pressure before you smoke, and then smoke and check it about fifteen minutes later. And look at the difference. And almost always blood pressure will be increased when you smoke just because of the effects of nicotine on those arteries. So that is a very powerful thing to do. But next to that, diet is pretty much one of the more powerful things. So 8 to 14 points in the DASH trial uh, reduction in blood pressure, that's pretty huge. Again, that's about as much as any one medication at a sort of a, a moderate dose. But um, exercise does help. It's a little less effect than, say, the DASH diet or decreasing your sodium. But regular exercise can do that um, and certainly has lots of other health benefits. As far as what type of exercise, I would do sort of a mix of about two-thirds to three-quarter aerobic activity. Things are going to get your heart rate up to where you can talk but not sing. And doing that, you know, sort of working up gradually three to five times a week, and then supplement that supplement that with maybe one or two, uh, you know, sort of low weight training um, um, episodes. But do something that's that's going to be something you can continue for your life. But those things are very healthy. Blood pressure will come down and, and respond to that in most cases. It in, and uh, it just you know you you are a living testament that. Dietary changes can work, and uh, just stick with it. Though, just don't don't change it because if you change it within a couple of weeks to a couple of months, you're probably going to see that blood pressure come back up. You may be in that small category, though, if you continue to do these things uh, at your age. You may can hold off on the development of hypertension later in life. Very good. All right, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Hope, and uh, good luck to you. We all need to be doing that. You know, people are like the. I've heard physicians even say. Well, diet and exercise don't really work in treating blood pressure. And, uh, well, they do work if you do them. So that's the key right there. We all have to do them, myself included. So that's all of us there. We're going to go to Susan from Biloxi. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? Okay, I have a very dear friend who's in her mid-70s. She's 5'8", inches tall and weighs 103 pounds. Mm. She's always complained that she's had problems with her weight. And I've seen pictures of her way back, like in her 20s, and she's skin and bones. She eats nothing but carbs, applesauce, diet grapefruit. Um, and I'm, I have to force her to take in protein. Mm-hmm. And the concern is that she's going to have protein deprivation when she goes into retirement. She does not cook. She does not go out to eat. And I'm really concerned that she's not going to last very long. Yeah, it's, you know, certainly as we get older, uh, protein is important and you need different sources of that. Even if you're a vegetarian, there are great ways to get, uh, you know, plant proteins uh, into your diet. So, 
I, you know, it's it is hard when somebody's sort of living on the edge. Uh, another you know, good example would be the teenager who just doesn't want to eat anything that's good for them or adult for that matter. Um, but, yeah, making the changes can be useful. And particularly as she gets older, uh, I think you hit on the high points there about, um, you know, that that's beneficial with not losing lean muscle mass and she's you know she's on the lower end i didn't calculate a bmi but i would think that's probably in the 17 18 range maybe a little bit higher than that but that's at the lower end of what's a normal body mass index but even beyond that you need to think about muscle lean muscle mass and uh, lean muscle mass is associated at least it may not be causal but it's associated with having better outcomes later in life and it makes sense if you think about the more lean muscle mass you have, uh, you just have more functional muscles. They can help you if you trip to not fall and break something. They can also help with bone health because they're attached to bones and they exert pressure on bones to help make them, uh, you know, uh, denser as we get uh, older if we have all the right kind of components there. So there's all kinds of reasons why that's important. If you want to encourage her, or if she was coming to me, I would say, hey, tell me about your diet. Tell me what you eat. Um, here's some things that you might consider. But it's not a bad idea to you know, have a consult with a registered dietitian or a nutritionist to really sort of come up with a program for the individual. I, you know, I, I am not a fad diet person. I talk about DASH diet, Mediterranean diet, and those kinds of things. But the beauty of those is it's very broad in what you can do for yourself and based on your own food preferences within those. I am not a big fan of the very restrictive diets that, you know, some people would advocate that patients um, uh, be on. Um, And I think you have to individualize that to what somebody can actually do. And what, again, what their food preferences are, what kind of access to food they have. Maybe there are some, uh, you know, some limitations on what they can actually buy with a lot of healthy foods expensive. So um, sitting down with a person and coming up with a plan is very good and useful. And then they'll know, okay, well, wait, wait a minute. I might can do this diet um, that I didn't think I could and I can make it that it's healthy for me that it's convenient for me, that it fits my preferences, and that it tastes good. Otherwise, most people don't stick with that long term. The other thing that might be useful is to have, you know, to encourage her to to make sure that her physician is really looking at those kinds of things. Nutrition's not one of those subjects that we used to teach very well in medical school, and it's still one that we're working on. So it's um, that it is very important. It's the building box of what your body can do with, uh, with what you have. Uh, and it can change things over time. And most people feel much better and do much uh, better functionally if they, you know, change those aspects about their diet uh, over time. Uh, one more thing to say on this, too, is like sometimes patients will say, yeah, but all my labs look okay. And you checked all the labs that have to do with my nutrition. Uh, that's not, you know, labs are important and a lot of them that check like albumin and protein levels and, uh, uh, electrolytes and all those kinds of things, they fit into the, to the big picture, but it's not the only picture. So, um, what somebody can do functionally and what their lean muscle mass is, all those kinds of things can be important in a lot of individuals. 
And then just having a discussion and, you know, an encouraging discussion with that person as a friend, in your case, just to say, hey, you know, I'm worried about you. Is Have you thought about that? Have you, um, you know, I, I'd love to have you as a friend a long time. And um, have you thought about your own health in ways that you might can can improve it? So and maybe even like partner with them, say, hey, you want to try out different things like if you maybe we can, you know, sort of do this together. But those were some things that I would approach her with uh, to try to improve that. I've done all that. She's a retired uh, registered nurse. So she knows all that. She knows the importance of muscle mass. She knows the importance of her numbers, and she will quote me that her numbers are good. And I keep telling her that's not the only thing, and she just will not change her faking habits. Yep. Uh, uh, d- doctors and nurses, we, we make the worst I'm sorry. Doctors and nurses make the worst patients. I will I will say that right off the top uh, because we know, although we we probably do know a lot more than the lay public. Sometimes we will justify what we know to leverage what we want, uh, if that makes sense. But I think you're describing that. It definitely makes sense. She's got like the mind of a obstinate teenager. <laughs> We all do from time to time on some issues. <laughs> I, Susan, be supportive. You know, it, that's human nature right there. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to, to be doing this for 20 plus years in what I do. I have patients that, uh, you know, they'll just tell me, well, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I don't be- or I don't believe in that. I don't believe in taking this medication for things. And I tell them, look, my job while you're coming to me is to, you know, give you the evidence to keep up with the medical literature on things and what's out there and what can be most beneficial for you and then partner with you to do it. And if you don't want to do something, I'm going to say, okay, that's fine. Same thing as if somebody came in and said, you know what, I love smoking. I'm not going to change. I said, okay, but every time you come in here, I'm going to encourage you to quit smoking. And if you want me to help you with that, I can. So I think you can do the same kinds of things. It is frustrating sometimes but people have the choice to do that themselves, and all we can do is encourage them. All right, thank you for calling, Susan. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about any kind of healthcare issue that might be uh, something you're dealing with, new medication, new side effect, new symptoms, or maybe it's somebody else in your family or a friend that you'd like to uh, ask a question about. So a previous caller was just talking about, you know, the frustrations we sometimes can have with those that are closest to us and uh, trying to change sort of health patterns. And how do you do that? And uh Unfortunately, right now, I think culturally in our society, we are losing the art of uh, encouragement <laughs> on uh, on trying to persuade somebody to do something. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of in other areas, not just in medicine, there's a lot of of talk and a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's one thing to present the data uh, from something that's very powerful and says, look, this is, you know, a thousand or thousands of people who had this condition were treated this way. And uh, this these are the outcomes um, and these are the side effects. And then, you know, based on that, I think you should uh, should do this treatment. Um, unfortunately, if you come across uh, as telling somebody, you know, well, you're stupid if you don't do it or. You know, this is uh, something is morally wrong with you. That's uh, and that's a common uh, tactic that a lot of people are using these days to get their point across. 
And unfortunately, it's not very effective. It's very effective in polarizing the people who agree with you to your side uh, and to become popular with that. But if your goal is really to change behavior, then informing people in a way that preserves the relationship and, um, you know, uh, acknowledges that they can pretty much make their own choices I've just found that that's much more successful. Actually, there's been some studies on that method that are much more successful than um, beating somebody over the head with a study. Uh, you know, I, I would not do that, but that's what it feels like to a lot of people. It's like, you just keep coming in here and you tell me about things every time. And um, just a little bit different uh, tactic might be uh, more satisfying to you too if you're just trying to say, you know what, I just want to share this with you. This is just something that's, uh, you know, pretty important to me, or as I think about our friendship and some of the things that you've dealt with, I think this might be something that you might be interested in. They're going to be much more interested in, in uh, that information than if you said, why don't you do this? You need to change what you do. So just my two cents about that. So that uh, that may be a, a different way of of thinking about it and applying that to your relationships. It certainly, again, unfortunately, in what we see a lot these days, either in formal debates or the news, or uh, there's just not a lot of that going around right now. So let's bring that back. That would be great, wouldn't it? Let's go to Diane from Gaucher. Good morning, Diane. Oh, good morning. Uh, yes, I have a doctor's appointment about my foot. I have pain in it and also pumping it from the top of my foot. One doctor said it's arthritis, but I was going to get a second opinion. So can you tell me, give me an idea about what questions I need to ask him about this? Yeah, they'll probably ask you, depending on what kind of doctor, is it an orthopedic doctor that sort of does the foot stuff? It's a foot doctor, yes. Okay, because some people, you know, sometimes we say foot doctor, that can mean a number of things. Some, Most of the time that oh, isn't. Podi- is podiatrist. Yeah, yeah, oh, podi- a podiatrist? Is that, well, I know you considered a foot specialist. Gotcha. Okay. So if it is a podiatrist, I'll, I'll, I'll take this to a couple of different ways. Podiatrists are extremely helpful. They're a great part of the, of the healthcare team. I refer people to podiatrists a lot. Usually they are dealing, they can do some things, like they can do some uh, assessment of your feet. They can look at some areas of your feet that need attention. If it's like bunions or calluses or nails, or they can take off, you know, if you've got a bad ingrown toenail, they can take that out. So they can do some limited procedures there in the office, and that's what they're trained to do with the feet. A, a foot doctor, like an orthopedic surgeon, so basically... They're looking at the uh, the bones and all of the structures in the foot that help with movement, for the most part, to try to figure out what's going on. And if that's the kind of doctor you're talking about, so they're going to look for a diagnosis first to try to pin down why you're having this pain on your foot. And there's lots of things that could cause that. Top of the foot, usually it's either a couple of things like the arch of your foot or... Uh, the structures that are uh, like the bone structure of that arch. And sometimes over time, you can have either deterioration of that arch. And there's great, some great exercises through physical therapy that you can do for that. Um, or it can be some actual problems with either the blood supply or the nerves to the foot. Or it might be some muscles that are torn or ligaments from a previous injury or something that sort of crept up on you. 
They use a couple of different things, and if you're going to see them at this point, I'm guessing they probably already did some x-rays and maybe even some other studies. Is that right? Yeah, I have had Yeah. So they may want to look at those or obtain some more just to sort of see that structure. And it just sort of depends. If it is more of what's going on with your arch and you don't have like a broken bone or you don't have a torn ligament, a lot of times they will design some footwear for you or some inserts into your footwear which would fit your foot structure and not cause some of those problems. We have a lot of wear and tear on our feet just because it has to hold us up day after day after day. And um, if you're not wearing, you know, sometimes shoes can look really nice, but they don't really do much uh, in the way of supporting us. Uh, they may look really good, um, but um, those those kinds of things, sometimes you have to go with function over fashion there uh, or blend the two together. But, uh, yeah, Diane, they're probably going to be saying that. Here's the things that I would do, and I w- this is with any kind of complaint. Write down when it started, or at least make sure you know that. Like when they ask you in the office, I love when people write it down because sometimes you get in the office and you get a little stage fright and you're like, you know, people will be like, I can't remember. I'm so sorry. But if you write it down, you can say, okay, it started. I'm just, you know, make up something March the 1st or it started three months ago or a year ago. And then describe where it is, how the pain feels. Does it go anywhere else? Is it related to anything that you're doing in particular? Like if you stand up on your toes to reach something or if you are just walking or if you twist your ankle or, you know, all those kinds of things. Just think about that. What makes it worse? What makes it better? Does it sort of come and go during the day? Because that's important, too, when it happens. And then what have you been doing for it up to this point? Like what kind of things have you uh, gone through, like physical therapy or medication? And then the other thing is making sure you let them know every other medical problem you have, because sometimes those can affect the feet. Um, so it's mm-hmm. it's common, you know, like blood things that would affect the blood flow to the feet or the, the nerve activity to the feet. And think about, too, anything else that's happened to your knee or your hip. Because a lot of times if we change our gait, the way we walk and the way we stand because of a knee pain or a hip pain or even back, then sometimes that can throw off the alignment of that foot and cause pain over time because you're stressing it in a way that's a little bit out of alignment. Okay. All right. But that, yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would start with. They may ask you other questions, Diane, like, you know, you have any fever? Do you have any kind of other orthopedic problems? There may even be like a sheet that you fill out before you come in, but just think about, you know, okay, let me, let me rewind and think when this happened, how did it present? What kind of pain is it? Did it go anywhere else? All those kinds of things. Okay. I wrote everything down. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. All right. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Good luck to you. I hope you get the right diagnosis and the right treatment there. We're going to go to Dennis in Tupelo. Good morning, Dennis. Yes, sir. Good morning to you. I, think, I have a question. Sure. Um, oh, I don't know, two, three, five, fifty. I don't know, a few years ago, I listening to all kind of stuff, that they stopped doing the colonoscopy thing in Europe in several places because more people were showing up dead from that that showed up dead from, uh, you know, colon cancer or whatever. And it made me leery and 
I don't know. I'm 75. I'm going to die anyway. But <laughs> I want to know, you know, I want to know what's the deal with that because I had one once, and I swore I'd never go through that again. So what's your take on that whole yeah. mission? Yeah, so I, I am not aware of, and I keep up with colon cancer stuff, the screening part, just because that fits into my patient population. I'm not aware of what you just described in Europe, and they haven't actually stopped doing those in Europe, um, and there's not any increased risk when you compare it to the risk of not screening. More people have, you know, they certainly they've caught a lot of colon cancers and colorectal cancers from doing these over the years or decades now, um, and certainly saved a lot of lives from that. But, um, yeah, it's still recommended, actually, because we've seen an increase in colon cancer in younger individuals. You know, it used to be between the ages of 50 and 75 that we do the screening. Now that's extended down to age 45, unless you have a first or second degree relative, brother, sister, mother, father, uh, who have had colon cancer, they do it a little bit sooner on those. So uh, in your case, though, if you're 75, that's sort of the cutoff um, of screening. So you lucked out there, uh, Dennis. You're, you're actually out of that range at this point. So from a, you, from a personal standpoint, what they say is, you know, if you're between 60, you know, 76, sorry, 76 and 85, then basically it's your personal preference to talk with your physician about. So based on what you just said, um, you know, I would say you could just say, hey, not interested at this point, and then move on. But as far as, uh, you know, colonoscopies are incredibly safe procedures. There are very few side effects with those, particularly uh, when you look at, you know, death or dying. It is an uncomfortable thing to do. Usually the procedure is not uncomfortable, but the prep is the thing that people are like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to go through that. Thankfully, the yeah, G- they knocked me out. Then, you know, I said, yeah, I, yeah that's you know, and, that's that's percent. They put me on percent. And, you know, I don't remember anything about it. Well, here, what's the you know, how long does it take for it to kill you? <laughs> you know, the colon cancer. Yeah. Oh, it can be like months. Um, it depends on the type of colon cancer. So it's not just like one, but adenocarcinoma of the colon can be months, you know, if you don't treat it. Um, if you treat it, it can go on a couple of years. You know, there was a, not too long ago, I think most people remember the actor who, uh, Chad, Chadwick Boseman, who played Black, Black Panther in the Marvel series. He was in his uh, 30s uh, when he developed colon cancer and actually died not too long after that that acting you know short acting career but uh yeah it's and that was with a pretty aggressive treatment but yeah colon cancer if it's not treated does progress pretty pretty uh aggressively over uh months and if you don't treat it that's that's about your lifespan well i you know i don't think i have it but you know i just a question and you know my my grandfather died from prostate cancer and it took 15 years for it to kill him and so I'm 75, and I'm thinking, well, if I live to be 90, yeah, and you know, yeah. maybe that's stupid yeah. thinking. No, but. no, no. It's not. It is a little bit different. It's actually a lot different. Prostate cancer is typically slow growing, and you're exactly right because a lot of people, what we know now is you don't have to be aggressive on that one most of the time, even if you're diagnosed with it. 
you can just watch it for a while before and not do anything in some cases. But colon cancer is different. Not every cancer acts the same. So it has to do with the type of cancer. And even within certain types, like, for instance, lung cancer, Lung cancer can be about four different big types of cancer, and they act differently. The squamous cell acts differently than adeno and uh, adenocarcinoma, so it's it's you know it's it is different. Um, and then cancer that starts in one place and then goes to a different place. But you're exactly right about prostate cancer. That's one that's usually slow growing, and if you're already older, then a lot of times you can just say, well, we're just going to watch that one. Uh, colon cancer doesn't act that way. It's a lot more aggressive. But again, if you're 75 and you hadn't had any problems, they may just want to test, you know, there, there's a test that can test your stool for blood and some of the DNA of colon cancer. And that's non-invasive. Um, and you can do that. But if, if you're not, you know, if you're saying, you know what, I'm just going to take my risk, you know, and, and I'm 75, I made it this far. I think that's fine. And that fits within the guidelines. Well, am I burning your daylight, or can I have one more something to say? Uh, yeah, we got about uh, one more minute. Then we're going to try to get to our last caller. Okay, okay. I'm a, a herbal nut, and there's turkey tail mushrooms have been shown to reduce and even completely stop tumors and stuff like that related to cancer. Um, are you familiar with any of that? Because they're starting to use it in D.C. Yeah, I, I'll I'll comment real quickly on that. So there is some evidence that in a precursor state, that that might be one way to sort of improve your risk of that. But certainly, it does not. There have not been the uh, widespread studies to look at that uh, to treat cancer of any kind. Uh, it's been mo- mostly very small anecdotal. Uh, evidence of that, and it hasn't been conducted in a way that really looks for the side effects. I'd be very careful with that if you have cancer. I would not recommend that with people unless that is a last resort or it's part of a really regimented, uh, you know, physician's uh, prescribed way of, of treating it. Okay, well, thank you, and and I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to Sherry. Sherry, we got about uh, two minutes or one minute. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. I, okay, I had uh, in the nineties. I had twenty-five lymph glands removed as part of a mastectomy. Uh huh. And, and then this in February, I had shoulder replacement surgery, and since then, I'm having a real problem with lymphedema. Yeah. And yeah. I'm a lymphedema specialist, uh, uh, OT. That's a lymphedema specialist. But I just wondered if you knew of anything I can do to get this lymphedema under control. Yeah, unfortunately, not more than what you're already doing. You know, I'm sure you know that compression can help sometimes. So a lot of people will have a a sleeve made that sort of compresses that. Unfortunately, after they take out all that lymphatic system, stuff doesn't work very well. Diuretics don't work very well, like Lasix, uh, just because the system, sort of the highway structure with getting rid of the excess fluid has been removed. But the exterior compression is about the only thing I know. But it sounds like you're seeing the right people, but it is a frustrating thing to deal with. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't have anything additional to give you at that. 
That's uh, all the time we have today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. You can tune to MPP Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.